You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 134. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. Thank you to the new supporters of the show at Anchor FM. Welcome and thank you again. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, share the podcast with others, because it turns out, according to the analytics from Spotify, this year anyways, that was the way in which this podcast was shared the most, was peer-to-peer. So thank you for recommending the podcast and sharing it with other people. I appreciate that. Otherwise, you can go over to the Warrior Priest podcast at wordpress.com and click subscribe there to get it delivered directly to your email inbox. Otherwise, that being said, I remain dedicated to the ad-free format. Uninterrupted, monologuing, ruminating, however you want to say it. But your support for the podcast helps me take care of all the stuff that goes on under the hood. So it's truly appreciated. Now back to the episode. This week, I will return to Miyamoto Musashi's The Book of Five Rings. This episode will be in Chapter 3, The Fire Book, discussing the hold down a pillow technique of strategy, which I wanted to discuss today in relation to something that happened to me over the weekend and the consequences uh, to me in the present tense that I'll dive into probably with you. But let's read a little bit of Musashi first and then think on it. To hold down a pillow. To hold down a pillow means not allowing the enemy's head to rise. In contests of strategy, it is bad to be led about by the enemy. You must always be able to lead the enemy about. Obviously, the enemy will also be thinking of doing this, but he cannot forestall you if you do not allow him to come out. In strategy, you must stop the enemy as he attempts to cut. You must push down his thrust and throw off his hold when he tries to grapple. This is the meaning of to hold down a pillow. When you have grasped this principle, whatever the enemy tries to bring about in the fight, you will see in advance and suppress it. The spirit is to check his attack at the syllable at. When he jumps, check his jump at the syllable j and check his cut at k. The important thing in strategy is to suppress the enemy's useful actions, but allow his useless actions. However, doing this alone is defensive. First, you must act according to the way, suppressing the enemy's techniques, foiling his plans, and thence command him directly. When you can do this, you will be a master of strategy. You must train well and research holding down a pillow. And that is the section, chapter three, the fire book, to hold down a pillow, which I thought was just a fantastic one paragraph strategic roadmap that's so easy to apply and follow in the present tense. So what I was referring to earlier, Friday, I was taken to the emergency room 
because I thought that I had another kidney stone passing or kidney disease had developed. I had all the symptoms, went through this before in 2020. I've talked about it on the show plenty of times. My wife took me up to the ER. They ran all of the tests. I was miserable, hyperventilating, couldn't feel my fingers or my toes. My lips and my tongue were numb. My side hurt. Felt like there was a belt wrapped around my chest. I couldn't expand my diaphragm. I was short breathing from my stomach. Blood tests, urine tests, MRI came back. No kidney stones, no kidney disease, perfectly healthy. To which my physician then said, you have chronic anxiety. And I immediately was upset by that, <laughs> that word. It said, no, I don't. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> I'm calm. You're not calm. He said, no, seriously, you have, you have chronic anxiety. I've seen it before. And I said, but I, my side hurts and everything that's happening to me happened to me in 2020 as a consequence of my kidney stones. And he said, no, it's just how your body is manifesting your hyperventilation and your panic attacks. You're suffering from chronic anxiety. So we discussed it uh, a little bit. I accepted it and got over myself and stopped with the little boy shit, feeling sorry for myself. Well, that can't be me. That's for weaker men. Little boy stuff. Accepted that, yes, I have been under perhaps in a, a little bit more stress um, lately than, than usual, for sure. Am I constantly under stress? Yes. Am I constantly anxious? Yes. So perhaps this isn't seasonal. Perhaps this didn't just occur. I know this from listening to confessions for 13 years. When people come to me as their pastor to confess something, usually by the time they get to me, I'm their last stop. It's a crisis. That's why they come to me. And it's not so much my responsibility to try and fix the situation or help reverse what's happened. By the time most people get to me, it's far past too late. My job, so to speak, is to try and contain the explosion as best I can so that fewer people are hurt by the fallout. So when I then started to reflect on the way home from the ER, on this feeling that I have in my chest all the time, it feels like there's a hand gripping my ribcage, pulling me forward. I always need to be somewhere. So that when I am somewhere, for example, now recording this, talking into this microphone, it feels like there is a hand pulling me to what I need to do next. So I'm not focused so much on what I'm doing right now. 60 to 70 to 80% of my attention is focused on what I'm doing right now. But the rest of my focus and attention is on the future, on what needs to be done, where I need to go, what I need to do next. And that anxiousness that I always feel then is when I'm doing the thing I need to do next, I'm already on to the next thing. And as a consequence, then, I'm always being pulled forward. I'm always anxious. I'm always stressed out about what needs to get done next. So I'm never settled. I'm always out of breath, either in actual fact or just metaphorically. 
always on the move. And as a consequence, after years and years and years of this, in fact, I would argue now, reflecting on it the past three or four days, that I have suffered from chronic anxiety for pretty much my entire life. Because as soon as I was old enough to walk, I felt the need to get away from my home. And then when I got my driver's license, that need amplified the need to drive away. And then as I got into college and I got out of the house and I got away from where I grew up at, that need to continuously keep going forward and going further and further away from my home, it just continued to amplify over the years. And so I just accepted as normal the way that I felt all the time. It's similar to me that when I was still in the throes of my addiction, I would go to a bar and my attitude, my mindset was I'm not leaving until I spend all of the money in my pocket on liquor because that's why I'm here. So the thought, the idea, the reality of having a beer with friends at a bar and then going home was not only alien to me, it was absurdly stupid. But then when I got sober and I looked around at other alcoholics like myself, I realized, oh, we had normalized a very abnormal, self-destructive, destructive to other personalities behavior. And it's only when you are sober that you then recognize it wasn't everybody else around you that was behaving abnormally. It was you. You had normalized your addiction. In the same way then, I just normalized my anxiety. Because like I said, I can think back and it was always there. I can never remember a time when I wasn't anxious, where I didn't feel the need to keep going and doing something else and being somewhere else. It drove my relationships for sure in my 20s and 30s. It definitely is what made me successful when I applied myself to school or to work or to relationships. But it's also then what destroyed a lot of my relationships over the years because I needed to keep moving and I needed to move on to the next person and the next thing because there's always something else that needs to be done. There's always someone else that needs to be met and loved and talked to and taught and played and whatever it might be. There's always something that needs to be done. At least that's the way I was wired. So now the past three days where... I have now accepted that. It's been diagnosed. I can treat it. And I am. It has been remarkable and shocking in some ways how I feel right now compared to four days ago. And the only thing that I can compare it to in my own experience then is that I'm going through low-key what it felt like when I first got sober. Because... When I first got sober, I was struggling to just figure out well, what does it mean to be sober? And the pull of my addiction was still right there. It was still very present for me at that time. So you're working on being sober. You're, I'm going to 12-step meetings. I'm reading my big book. I'm, I'm doing what I need to do to take responsibility for my addiction. Well, simultaneously, talking with other alcoholics, about when they first got sober and what I was going through when I was first sober, that pull to go back to the bottle, to go back to the pills, to go back to that, that thing that allowed you to not 
take responsibility, not accept consequences, not be responsible, and so on and so forth. So that when things got stressful or I was struggling or something didn't go my way or I needed an out, the alcohol wasn't there anymore. And that I had to go to my meetings and I had to call my sponsor and I had to do what was necessary to unwire my, my brain and to rewire my brain to think sober. So in the same way then, I can actually feel this push and this pull within me between the calm, focused, relaxed person that I am right now versus the anxious, needful, stressed out person underneath that has developed and grown and matured over time with me. Because what I did then Saturday, went with my wife uh, to a local business in Jordan, Minnesota called Strains. Strains of the Earth, I think is the full name. And we have a relationship with them. We've shopped with them for a while now. And that's where I get all my CBD products from, all my HHC products from. I highly recommend them. They're super knowledgeable. They're super cool people, super helpful. I like the way they run their business. Great product. Highly recommend Strains in Jordan, Minnesota, if you're anywhere in this area. But I went in and I said, hey, you know, I was diagnosed with chronic anxiety and I'd also like something that would help with inflammation because I train every day or I'm teaching in mixed martial arts. And so he set me up with the different CBD, HHC stuff that I use now for treating my anxiety. And then I went to the other section, which is all medicinal mushrooms. And that was a real gift to me on that day of all days because the woman who runs the the, that side of the shop with another young man, she has fibromyalgia and she treats her fibromyalgia with these medicinal mushrooms and with CBD. And so she was not only the perfect person to tell me what works and what doesn't work, especially in regards to fibromyalgia, but likewise, she had like a PhD level knowledge of her product and what she was, what she was selling. So we had a fantastic conversation and she was very helpful so shout out to you for helping me with all of that. And so now I've got my, my mushroom gummies and my tea and my cocoa and all my different medicinal mushroom uh, products. And I got my CBD and my HHC and I'm treating my anxiety that way. And yeah, it's wild, man. I didn't know that you didn't have to walk around with a fist in your chest all the time. And I didn't realize that needing to be somewhere all the time and that constant gnawing feeling like I'm not doing something, um, that's not healthy because I had normalized it. And in the culture in which I participate, always keep pushing, always keep grinding, never take a round off, et cetera, et cetera. So it just became normalized for me. Just bear down on your mouthpiece and move forward. Whereas now, like I said, I'm, I'm calmer and I'm relaxed and I'm focused. I'm more present. Other people have commented on that. And it's just nice to not feel that constant need, that constant pull. And creatively, it's certainly freed me up quite a lot. It frees my mind up for sure. But yeah, it's been good. And I wanted to share that with you because many of you have reached out and asked me how I'm doing and said you're praying for me and encouraging me and shared your own stories of anxiety with me and stress. And I appreciate all of that. It's all well received. And I'm thankful for you for, for doing that for me. And 
Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting off-ramp when it comes to hold down a pillow then, meaning don't allow the enemy's head to rise. But to use myself as an example, how often do we normalize our enemy? Whether it's anxiety and stress, whether it is um, eating to forestall having to deal with some emotional upheaval, avoiding having that difficult conversation at work or at school, or to sit down at the table with the person that you've lived with for 25, 30, 40 years and ask a real serious question that neither one of you wants to talk about. Where is the enemy's head rising? And yeah, I think a lot of times, at least in my experience, and in listening to people's confessions, listening to people talk about their troubles and their struggles with me over the years, it seems the, the theme that we all share in common is that our enemy's head rises and we don't see it because we've become habituated to it. It's become normalized. And often what we consider a virtue may actually just be the fact that we share the vices that that virtue implies. That's Nicholas Gomez Davila, he's a Colombian philosopher, said that. That often when we think we're doing something good, we might be careful and check ourselves because it simply may be the fact that we are engaged in the vices that the good implies, meaning for that good to exist, it also reveals what is not good. And sometimes we are pursuing something that we call good, but not for good intent. Or we're not aware of the fact that we're actually engaged in something that's hurtful, but we're justifying it by calling it good. It's so easy to do, especially when we're working with other people. Because we want to be right. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want to hurt other people intentionally, not most of the time anyways. We don't, I guess at root, we don't want to be the bad person. We don't want someone to look at us and say, you're a bad person. You're a bad woman. You're a bad man. We want to be the good guy. We want to be on the right side of history. So it's easy, I think, even if we're paying attention, even if we're critical, of ourselves and, and others, if we think critically and listen critically and we're, we're brutally honest and, and rigorously honest with ourselves, still, we allow the enemy's head to rise because we normalize the enemy. We allow, we allow the things that are hurtful and, and destructive to us to get in. And we welcome them in because usually they give us pleasure. There's something about them that gives us pleasure. Even if we look at it on, on the surface, we can say this, is, this hurts. If we dig deeper, there's a reason we allow it to keep happening, even if it does hurt. In my experience, usually that's because, again, we take pleasure from that. We we think we deserve it. We're entitled to it. Whatever the reason is that we justify repeating that behavior, somewhere under all of it, there's pleasure. Otherwise, we wouldn't allow it to keep happening. So we allow the enemy's head to rise. But then in in this contest of strategy, like Musashi writes about, we're led about by the enemy. I let my anxiety and my stress lead me because I was accomplishing so much as a consequence. My anxiety and stress drove me to be better than others. 
It still does. I'm not saying it's gone. It's just that now I, I recognize it and I can identify my enemy. And because of the treatment that I'm using, um, when it comes up, I, re I, can, I can push it back down. I can say, oh, nope, stop. We're not going there. We're not going to hyperventilate. We don't need to be anywhere except right here, right now, doing exactly what we're doing. Calm down and relax. The only person that's judging you as harshly as you're judging yourself right now is nobody. You are your harshest critic. You are the worst judge in this entire building right now. So trust me, no one is judging you as harshly as you are judging yourself right now. So chill out, man. Relax. It's a gift. Enjoy it. And I have to remind myself of that constantly right now. It's all a gift. It's what has been given to me. And therefore, relax. It's all a gift. Which, again, after decades of living one way, it's not that, it's easy to say, it's just not that easy to implement and practice. And so, even talking now, I'm hyper aware of who I was last week when I recorded the podcast versus who I am now, as far as my overall attitude and feelings. And just that to me is encouraging because it shows that it doesn't require a great deal of effort to change sometimes. In my case, I just had to, one, learn what the root of a lot of my struggles are. Then two, ask myself, how can I treat this naturally with medicines that are not harmful to me, but will actually benefit me once they're metabolized and allow me to approach life from a different perspective than I have up till now. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a magic pill. It's simply, again, a tool in the tool belt, in the toolbox, which in my instance, in the example that I'm using here, it allows me to simply function as a grateful, content, mostly satisfied person in the midst of my struggles and my afflictions, my responsibilities and duties to others. It just allows me to be present and breathe. And sometimes that's really the most important and the only thing that you can do in those kinds of moments is just stop, take a deep breath, and then let it out. In through the nose for three, then out of the mouth for seven, breathing from the diaphragm. So if we don't hold down the pillow, like Musashi writes about, if we keep pulling the pillow off of our enemy's face, to use a, an assassin's metaphor from so many movies that I've watched, especially mob movies, when we let our enemy's head rise, when we let our enemy stick his head up, her head up, and then lead us around by the nose, the enemy is dictating our strategy to us. We're not actually strategizing anymore. We're being strategized for by our enemy. That's why when we ignore or don't recognize or haven't diagnosed the root of something that's debilitating to us or confusing or simply throws us off our game, when that happens, we're being led around by the nose, by our enemy. But if it's normalized, we just accept that that's the status quo. That is homeostasis. And I wonder how often then it is needful 
for someone else to come from outside and say to us, hey, I see what has been so debilitating for you. I see what's been so destructive to you. I can see it because I'm on the outside and I'm not emotionally tied to you or to your life. So I can look objectively and dispassionately at it and say, hey, it's not this thing that you were focused on. That's not actually real. It's actually this thing over here that you're not focused on that is real. And now that you have had it pointed out to you and you can see it, you can act on it. I talk about this all the time in jujitsu to new students when they apologize for failing to execute a technique the way that I taught it. I explain to them, you can't see what you don't know what to look for. And unless I or another higher belt shows it to you, you can't see it. But now that I pointed it out to you and you can see it, it's always there now. But you need someone outside to come and point it out to you so you can see it. So you know what to look for, what to be aware of. Then you can say, oh, now I see the enemy coming. And like I said in, in my example, now I can feel when that anxiety is coming and I can feel when it's trying to get its claws around my chest again. And I can just say, whoa, no, this is not necessary. This does not have to happen this way. And then I can just push it down and make it go away. And I pray then that over time, that becomes less and less of an effort, a conscious effort even on my part, because I'll build up that wall, seal it up tight, make sure it's well defended so that when that anxiety comes and tries to invade, it'll crash against that wall and it won't be allowed to get inside and make a mess of my life. But I got to post a watchman on the wall every day to watch for it then. I can't just build a wall and expect that the wall is just going to stand, that my anxiety and my stress isn't going to chip away at it, try and tunnel under it, try and climb over the top of it. I've got to post a watchman. I've got to be aware, just like with my addiction. I can't just take a day off with my addiction. It'll scale the walls and make a mess of the palace. So I need a watchman on the wall to guard against my addiction, to guard against my anxiety and stress, to guard against my enemies, both internal and external. But sometimes, maybe more times than we'd like to admit, we need other people to point it out for us, to help us see what we have normalized that is not normal for us. So even, and then as he says, right, if we're thinking about this and doing this to the enemy, the enemy is also thinking about doing this to us. We're not the only ones who are aware of this strategy. The enemy is too. So we can put a cap on it and say, well, I'm not going to go out to the bar anymore, using addiction as an example. I'm not going to go out to the bar anymore. I don't need to go to 12-step meetings or read the big book or communicate to other people or connect with other people who also suffer from addiction and, and take some, some strength and some hope and, and some gratitude from them. I can do this on my own. I'll just stop going to the bar. Okay. What about the liquor at home? What about the next time you go to a family gathering? What about the office party? What about when you get the cravings? What about when it all falls apart and you are in free fall? You have absolutely no control over anything that is happening to you. What then? And also, how do you know where the next attack is going to come from? You're looking at the bar. So what are you not looking at? Always ask, where is the enemy? 
most smart enemies, wise enemies, experienced enemies are not going to attack from the front. They're going to try and ambush you. They're going to try and establish a point of dominance from the high ground. They're going to try and funnel you into some bottleneck or dead end canyon where there's no escape. So while you're paying attention to what you think is the imminent threat, the enemy is working their strategy, sneaking around behind you, laying an ambush for you. And I think this is an important note then that Musashi is bringing up is that you're strategizing, but so is the enemy. And therefore, what are you going to do to not allow the enemy to think for itself? To not allow the enemy to even come out and engage in battle? How are you going to stop the enemy before it even has a chance to march out the gates? Well, as in the case of Beowulf, we have to go to where the monster lives rather than waiting for the monster to come to us. Go, find the cave where the dragon sleeps and kill the dragon while it sleeps. Don't wait until the dragon has descended upon your village and then say, oh, we should have, we should have thought about doing something sooner. Then it's too late. In strategy, you must stop the enemy as he attempts to cut. You must push down his thrust, throw off his hold when he tries to grapple. Parry, dodge, roll, pull. This is the meaning of to hold down a pillow. When you have grasped this principle, whatever the enemy tries to bring about in the fight, you will see in advance and suppress it. I was talking about this on Sunday with one of my students that, or maybe it was Saturday, either day. The only reason that I appear to be moving faster than my student is because I have more experience and therefore I'm able to predict more quickly and more accurately what the student is going to do when we are sparring. And so it looks like I'm moving faster because I'm putting my, my hands and my feet and my elbows and my knees in a position, in a place where they're meeting my sparring partner. So I'm not chasing the strike. I'm allowing the strikes to come to me. This is the funnel analogy that I always use. When we start a round in sparring, we're at the top of the funnel. We both have 100% of our choices. My job during this sparring session, during this round, is to take away your choices, to bring you to the bottom of the funnel where you have no more choices and you have no other choice but to submit. But that's what my sparring partner is also doing, to Musashi's point. And my sparring partner is strategizing in an attempt to take away my choices, to bring me to the bottom of that same funnel where I'm forced to submit. And that is the fight within the fight. That is the strategy of the fight, to take away your opponent's choices so that they're forced to give you the submission. They'll quit for you. So that I'm not faster, I'm not more athletic, I'm not more gifted than this student. I'm simply more experienced. So it seems that I'm moving faster. When in fact, I'm not. I'm just putting myself in a position to meet my student when they arrive at that point with their head or with their body or with their foot. And though sometimes it seems like I hit much harder than I do. Not because I am such a hard hitter, I am, but rather 
when I swing, I'm efficient and I'm meeting you where you're going. Again, I'm not chasing after you to hit you. I'm meeting you where you were already going. You made the choice for me. And through the use of footwork and body positioning and taking different angles, I'm better equipped to meet you there than you currently are. That's all experience is. It's recognizing patterns. It's recognizing muscle twitches. It's recognizing on a subconscious level at a certain point, this is the ebb and the flow of the fight. This is the dynamic. And this is how this person's moving. This is what they're doing. And this is how we're going to counteract that. But do we apply the same principle, the same strategy to our our emotional and intellectual enemies? Do we apply this when we're trying to conquer something like literacy, learning how to read and write, or to become more literate, better at reading and writing? Do we apply this same principle when we're studying for a test or an exam, or we are preparing for an interview? How can we develop a strategy that allows us to recognize the worst parts of ourselves and how we often disguise the worst part of ourselves as one of our virtues. This is a common interview question. It's a cliche. Name your best quality and your worst quality. And they'll say, well, I'd have to say that my best quality is my worst quality and vice versa because I just care so much. Sometimes I care too much, right? It's like a humble brag that, well, my greatest weakness is I just, I care too much and I put too much of myself into my jobs. And it sometimes hurts my personal life, which is also my greatest strength because you know, if you hire me, I'm going to give you 110% every day. That's normalizing your enemy. And it's not being honest either. Instead of saying, well, I guess my greatest weakness would be the fact that I don't really want to work. I'd rather sit at home and play video games and order pizza all day, every day and dress in my bathrobe. But that's not reality. So I got to find a job and this is the one that is the least deplorable to me. But I promise that if you pay me well and you make me feel appreciated, I'll definitely give you 80% most days if I feel like it. But I'll always be honest with you. That's a good honest answer to a job interview question. (laughs) You'll never get hired, but... I were your interviewer, I'd be super impressed. I'd be like, we definitely got to hire this guy. He's, he's got something going on that we need. We just got to tap into it. And what's my greatest strength? If I feel like I'm being paid well, if I feel like I am being appreciated, if I'm not being undervalued in this position and I'm given the opportunity to express myself in a responsible way and to take responsibility for my product that I'm producing for you, then yeah, you can count on me to show up every day and be ready to get after it. That's also true. But if we're honest and we dig down deep, which in an interview, typically not what the person interviewing you wants to hear, the deep truth. But if we were honest, none of us would work unless we were forced to. We would much rather choose how we work and then put a value on our work for ourselves And then tell other people, this is what my time is worth because what I'm doing is pretty valuable to me. If we were all allowed to basically create our own jobs, not all of us would be happy. That's impossible. But I think more than a third would be. And if we were allowed to set our own value for what 
the work is that we're producing, I think we would be a lot happier too. We might all be broke, <laughs> but at least we would have a conversation, maybe a, a healthy conversation about the nature of work and why work is necessary, how it is relevant for the family and the society and how it really does bind the world together but also then how we quite often undervalue the work that people produce. I talked about this in the last episode in regards to art. Art is extremely subjective. I write my poetry as a catharsis. It's a healthy outlet for my thoughts and my feelings and my experiences, past, present, and future. Not everything that I write about is a first-person experience. Not everything that I write do I plan on acting on. Not everything that I write is something that's happened to me recently, but it's a way for me to take the flotsam and the jetsam of my brain, put it down in writing or in a drawing or a painting and say, okay, there, it's out of me. I have exercised this thought, this emotion, this experience, and I can walk away from it now and, and kind of look at it objectively because now it's just sitting there on the page and I can say, okay, I felt that way or I do feel that way. Now, what do I do with that? Well, there it is right there and it's real and it's coming out of you. So let's address that. And that's kind of what I do when I write my poetry or my songs or paint or draw, like I said. But it's just a way for me to be creative and to express myself. But I noted on social media, on Instagram, that it's a sign of the times in which we live that a series like poetry is often seen as emotional disturbance rather than an expression of actual creativity. When I'm not having a mental breakdown, I'm simply expressing myself in a healthy and safe way, a sober way actually. And when I write poetry, I'm attempting to express my, my view and understanding of where the metaphysical and the material overlap or if you want to put it a different way, where the spiritual and the physical overlap. It's how I get a grasp on something that to me is incomprehensible in the moment and maybe forever. But that's why I record this podcast. I need to think out loud and express into the microphone to others, this is where I'm at. And if this helps you, then I want to be a part of that conversation in any way I can. It's my way of giving back kind of doing the 11th and 12th steps of the AA program to say, okay, I've had a spiritual awakening. Now I want to take this message to other people who might struggle and suffer. But I also understand that there's a lot of people that don't grasp that. They don't want to, let's put it that way. They don't want to go dark and deep. It's like on this show, this is an opportunity for me to really dig into things and talk it through and piece out why I'm going through this or why I felt that way or, or why I think this when I read this text and talk to you about it so that you can read the text and think about it more deeply or not be afraid of the dark and, and to take that message to other people and say, hey, I have been or I am where you are at and I struggle with this too and, and this is kind of how I get through it. This is how I cope. This is how I treat it. It's just giving other people tools for their toolbox. And so for me, HHC and, and the mushrooms that I'm taking work and they work really well today. And that's all I'm really worried about is today. And I can say that with complete honesty, actually. It's fantastic to not feel like I'm 
being torn in two directions when I say something like that. It allows me to be present and I like that because I'm not worried about whether or not I'm going to go to jujitsu at 4.30 this afternoon. It's out there. I know that. But it's out there. The future is a mystery. The past is history and none of it's real. There's only the present tense. Another cliche, which is true. But if we don't, going back to Musashi, we don't hold that pillow down. If we don't keep the enemy's head from popping up, if we allow the enemy to determine our strategy for us, well, then we're always being led around. And like I said, if it becomes habituated, if it becomes normalized, we'll even think that we're thinking normally. I did. And yet for someone, actually two people in two weeks, that's why I took it as a clear sign from God that he was trying to tell me something because two people said the exact same thing to me within the period of Thanksgiving to this past Fridays. <clears throat> that now that it's pointed out, what are you going to do about it? You're just going to ignore it and pretend it's not there? Well, that's impossible. You want to allow that to affect your relationship with your, your spouse and hurt your children because they see you suffering but they don't know what to do or, or how to even ask you if you need help. And yeah, I think it's a fantastic gift when you have people around you that care enough to say, hey, are you okay? And at least in my experience, a lot of times, even when I'm not okay, I say I'm okay because I don't want to burden other people. I don't think that my problems are significant enough to complain. Because as a pastor, as someone who engages with many people every week, when they tell me about their struggles and their afflictions and their life, I think to myself, well, I have nothing to complain about. It's all a matter of perspective. Yes, it's subjective for sure. But it's also then hurt me because I've stayed silent. I've stayed quiet. I haven't brought it up. I haven't made myself the spotlight. And now what I'm trying to do, and I, I hope, and I encourage you to do this as well, is to be more communicative, to be more expressive, to find your art, find a way to express yourself and purge the, the detritus, the flotsam and jetsam of your thoughts and feelings and experiences, get it out in a healthy, sober, safe way, and hopefully then heal you and provide a way for you, a tool for you to then move forward in a healthy and, and productive way and to share that with other people who might look at you and say, hey, what changed? Well, the thing about a podcast is that every week we meet back up and you get to hear about my week. And I change from week to week because I'm a human being. I'm dynamic, not static, just like you are. And we're never the same from one day to the next. We're always changing. And I think it's important to remember that so that we don't get down on ourselves or judge other people who maybe the first time they tried doing something, it worked, it clicked for them. But maybe they're on their 50th time and it still hasn't clicked. I respect the person who's tried 50 times and still gets up so much. I'm not saying I respect them more than the other person who got on the first try. I'm just saying that in relation to each other, I respect both equally, but the person that keeps getting up, that's where my attention gets drawn. Because I look at that person and say, if you can do it, I can do it. This person over here did it the first time 
And there's a lot I can learn from you too. How did it happen? How did it click for you? Share your thoughts and experience and feelings with me too. Great. I can learn so much from the person who it clicked for for the first time, you know, on the first try. But you over here who keep trying, you fall and you get back up and you fall and you get back up. Like what's, what's going on with you? Like tell me about you. And I can respect both while also acknowledge that my attention is for myself personally drawn to this person and not that. And maybe you're the opposite. It doesn't mean that you can't learn something from the other person. It just which way your attention is pulling based on your personality, based on your experiences and what you've been through. In all of that then, if we're not more expressive and creative, if we keep these things that trouble us locked inside, they become termites that eat away at the foundation of our health and our well-being. They affect us in ways that we're not aware of until it's pointed out to us. And yet, once we recognize, okay, I've got a problem. This is affecting me. It's affecting my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health. It's pouring out into my relationships. It's affecting my work and so on and so on. Well, now you can address it. Now you can build that wall and appoint someone to watch over it. Now you can develop the tools necessary to treat it in a healthy way. Because at least speaking for myself, I didn't know that I could be happy consistently. And I'm not joking. I don't remember the last time I was happy for three days in a row. And, then, and maybe that sounds strange to you, but honestly, I, I've never been happy three days in a row. I can't remember the last time I was blissfully happy. And I'm not blissfully happy. I guess that's hyperbolic. But I just mean in the sense that overall, I'm just happy. And yet, at the same time, all of the struggles are still there. The things that afflict me, they're still there. My responsibilities, they're still there. My jobs, my relationships, everything's still there. Nothing's changed around me. And so what's changed is something in me, which is how I view things, how I view this constant need to be somewhere to do something. I can quiet that down now and I can, I can push it away and repel it and say, quit sticking your head up. I don't need you. You're not helpful. And that 4.30 is 4.30. It's going to arrive whether I'm here or not. So relax and enjoy just right now with what you're doing and ask yourself, is it a gift or not? Is, is it a gift? Am I seeing it as a gift? I get to talk into a microphone and express myself and put that on the internet and you get to listen to it. And we didn't, I didn't invent this microphone or this laptop. I don't even understand how all of this works. It might as well be magic to me as far as it goes. And yet somehow in the midst of the darkness and the chaos and the fluidity of life, and all of the things that we struggle with and worry about every day, the things that stress us out all the time, we get to be stressed out about that stuff. And we get to worry about that stuff. And as I've said before, there's a lot of people that would trade places with us in a second, given the opportunity. But it's easy to get caught up in our own trials and travails and 
think that either this is the worst thing that anyone has ever experienced ever, or, well, my suffering and struggles aren't worth bringing up because other people have it so much harder than I do. Maybe that's true, but it's affecting you. And when it affects you, it hits different. It's just the honest truth. Doesn't mean we can't sympathize with others. Doesn't mean that we can't walk with them and help them. It's just that when we get hit, it hurts more because it's us. And if we don't take care of ourselves and we don't take care of our relationships, our families, our homes, if we don't take care of our responsibilities, maybe it's just us that it affects. Maybe it affects other people, but if it affects us and we are not able to operate at our best, whatever that means in the moment, then we become lesser than, lesser than to ourselves, lesser than to other people. And it does have an effect, at least it has for me, in that I didn't know I could be happy. I didn't know I could be content in the middle of adversity and struggle and affliction. And now that I have this, today I can say that I am 100% committed to maintaining whatever this is. I don't need a name for it. I don't need it to be categorized. I just need to know that it works for me. And it allows me to be present and to enjoy the moment and enjoy what I'm doing right now. And I hope that if you don't have that, you can find it for yourself. You can get those tools and develop this. And if you do have it, why didn't you share it with me sooner? <laughs> I would have appreciated it. But I'm just kidding. The pillow. The pillow strategy. Hold down a pillow, Musashi says. Do not allow your enemy's head to rise up. Do not allow your enemy to lead you around and determine your strategy for you. Don't let your enemy dictate the terms of the conflict. Attack the enemy before they have a chance to even march out of their gates. Recognize that the enemy is also strategizing. They also know the hold down a pillow strategy. So what are we going to do today to keep the enemy from picking their head up? What are we going to do to dictate our enemy strategy to our enemy? Lead the enemy around. Parry. Dodge, thrust, pull, roll, counterattack. How do we set the terms for this engagement? Because as he says, the spirit is to check his attack at the syllable at. He doesn't even get the word attack out of his mouth. When he jumps, check his jump at the syllable j. Don't let his jump even land. Check his cut at k. Don't even let his sword touch your flesh. Mid-sentence, mid-thrust. Mid-jump, stop them dead. Because as he says, the important thing in strategy is to suppress the enemy's useful actions, take away their good choices, and allow his useless actions. Make your enemy give you the submission. Make your enemy want to surrender to you by only giving them useless options as their actions. However, doing this alone is going to be purely defensive. When you do it with two or more, you can go on the offensive because now you can set up strategies that involve ambushes. 
I'll attack from the front, and then you wait until I engage them in the battlefield, and then you come out from the side and charge down on them from the ridge. And in this way, we'll basically fold them in a scissor attack and crush them. So when we, when we work alone against our enemy, when we fight alone, we're always going to be on the defensive, Musashi says. We're always going to be fighting off our back foot, so to speak. But when we attack the enemy with two or more people, when we have a team or a squad or a company or a legion, then we can really accomplish some amazing things. So don't be afraid to surround yourself with a cohort, with a cadre of people who have your back, who aren't afraid to say, hey man, are you okay? Who aren't afraid to say, can I help you? Can I carry the weight for a while so that you can rest? They're not afraid to say, take the day off. They're not afraid to say, you know what, man? I don't need to know. It's cool. I just need to know that you're okay. When we surround ourselves with people like that, we're not fighting alone. But in my case, and maybe this is true for you too then, I get, again, so used to saying, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody can do this with me. People look at me to lead, not to walk with them. That's all in my head. I'm, I'm putting those thoughts in my head. I'm not asking other people for their input. I'm inputting their words for them so that I don't have to hear what could possibly be a contradiction to my own thinking, which is they're more than happy to walk with me. They want to help me. They want to show up for me. They're happy to walk out front with me or to walk side by side with me and don't think less of me because of that. But you get so used to fighting alone or thinking you're alone in the fight. And especially when you're fighting against so many enemies at one time. Maybe you do have chronic anxiety and you suffer from stress. But then maybe you have other health problems. Or maybe you have multiple relationship problems. Or you're working multiple jobs. And you're constantly moving and you're constantly running and you don't have time to sit down and relax. And there is no outlet. You're listening to this podcast on your way from one job to another job. What then? Who is around you? Because it's not just or not simply, well, I'm going from one job to another job. If they're jobs you love, there's no stress in that. But have you surrounded yourself with people who make going from one job to another job something that you look forward to, that you're actually grateful to walk through the door because you know these people are going to share the struggle of putting this product out with you, developing this program, taking care of these people. They're with you in this. You're not alone. You can be free to express yourself in those, those situations with those people without the fear of what they're going to think or say or how they're going to judge you. And then if you don't have that, how do you rethink and reorganize your life and your priorities and your schedule so that you can have that? And you are willing to fall down 50 times and keep getting up until you do get that job or that position or get into those relationships where that's going to be a daily occurrence. Again, I'm 51 years old and three days ago I found out I suffer from chronic anxiety. I've been through so much in my life. I'm on like my second or third life at this point. I've gone through recovery. I've gone through the 12 steps. I've gone through learning about my addiction, understanding my addiction, overcoming my addiction. 
And still, I had to have two people in the last two weeks point out to me, you have chronic anxiety, dude. You're having panic attacks. How long has this been going on? And then the longer I thought about it, the further back in my life I went and realized uh, four, maybe three, I don't know. (laughs) I guess a long time, it turns out. So I could either feel like a victim and say, I can't believe I didn't find out until I was 51 years old that I have this problem. Or I can be grateful and say, thank God I was only 51 when I found out about this problem that I have. And I get to do something about it that doesn't require me to go on brain crippling drugs or get addicted to something that I don't want to take. And that it doesn't have to be a burden alone. It can be a gift. It might be a burdensome gift, but it's still a gift because it allows me to live in the present and it allows me to be happy. And happy Donovan is way more fun than raging Donovan or uptight, stressed out, anxious Donovan. At least for me, he is. (laughs) But it's just nice to smile again. It's nice to laugh for no reason. It's great to be creative and be free to blow out the pipes and be expressive be honest with myself and other people, be relaxed. It's fantastic. So if anything comes of my constant education in all of the things that I do to myself to hurt myself, and by the grace of God, I get to walk away from those things only slightly scarred, then I hope it benefits you. I hope you can take something from that and apply it to your life for the good. And if that happens, then I think it's all bonus. And if you don't, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. All I can do is be honest with you, uh, speak honestly from my heart, and express what's going on in this crazy melon that I call a brain. But that's all I got today. And I hope that, if nothing else, you're on the path and that no matter how many times you fall down, get back up and realize, except I get to get back up. I get to fall down. People that don't struggle with these things don't go through this stuff. But do I want to be that person again? Do I want to go back to surrendering and just giving up? Because that's always on the table. It's always an option. That's why sometimes it's so damn hard, the work But it's beautiful work because it allows us to be people. And I mean that in the sense of we get to be, I don't know how to put it. It's, I want to, there's so many cliched words that you can use, genuine, authentic, real, whatever. But I guess just to show up for people is what I'm trying to say. Just show up for people and be yourself, not perform Not do the little boy, the little girl stuff where you're constantly seeking affirmation or attention. You need the spotlight. You need somebody to pat you on the back or or say, good job, sport. But you can just kind of show up and be there in the moment. Be present for people and be content and satisfied with the way things are in the midst of, like I said, chaos and struggle and affliction. Because those things, that's just part and parcel of life. And it is a battle and life is a war, but... I mean, you know, to be blunt, 
Um, that's kind of the point of faith, is that we trust in faith that the war is already won by our Savior. And so that's why we lean into our faith and lean into our belief in a good and a loving God and a good Savior at this time of year, especially December 7th, 2022, we lean into Christ and all that comes as a consequence of his birth and life and death and resurrection. At least for me, my faith in that is what I lean into and it gives me comfort and it allows me to be brutally honest with myself and other people. And it allows me to say, no matter how many times I fall down, by the grace of God go I. And so if I'm still here, it's because I'm supposed to be here. And if these things are being taught to me and shown to me, then it's because I need to see them and I need to do something about them. So I am. And I'm grateful to all of you for being on the other end of this and for your feedback, like I said at the beginning. So I'll end the pillow talk no pun. Well, that's a pun. That's a sad pun. It's a dad pun. I apologize. That was a dad joke. Um, to hold down a pillow, this strategy Musashi develops in this beautiful terse paragraph in chapter three, the fire book of the book of the five rings. Highly recommend you uh, go online and type in uh, Musashi book of five rings PDF. You'll see a free version all over the place. You can download it, put it on your Kindle, whatever, but it's a great book to just open up and meditate on whenever, wherever you happen to be at. There's always something new to learn. So that being said, I will leave you to your day, wherever you find yourself. Thank you to all my listeners in India. They are number five in my top five list of active listeners. So shout out to everybody in India for listening to me. You people are awesome. Other than that, it was the UK, the US, Australia, let's see, Canada, UK, US, Australia, and India. Yep, that's it. So thank you to everybody in the Western world and to everybody in India and down there in Australia for listening to the podcast. You people are awesome. It's kind of cool to see that stuff. But as far as that all goes, uh, yeah, that's all I got today. And I will talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace. <laughs>